Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week's sermon is titled, Your Purpose is Powerful, and Pastor Andy takes us through James chapter 5. The only condition our enemy needs to destroy the church is isolation. A generous giver needs someone to bless. We are called to be courageous in our vulnerability to ask, and courageous in our faithfulness to give. When we all do both, no one is isolated, no one is in need, and literally God's kingdom has come. Jesus is full of compassion for those who are in need and won't talk. Jesus is also full of mercy for those who can give and won't. So don't give up asking for what you need, and don't give up taking the risk of practicing generosity. You never know what will happen. Hi, friends. It's so good to be with you this morning. Oh, man. Hey, can we thank Paul and his worship team for worship? That was... Beautiful. Thank you, guys. Uh, so if you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. Every single week we declare what we believe as a church uh, because uh, we forget. And also because uh, you, you don't want my self-ambition and my personality being uh, the centerpiece of this church at all. <laughs> um, we want Jesus to be at the centerpiece of this church. Right? He, he, he's it. This is the reason why we're here. It's his kingdom. It's his will. It's his plan. It's his purpose. And so we declare this together every week. And so first we believe that there is always hope beyond our brokenness. Always. So no perfect people are allowed here. We drove them all away a long time ago. Uh, and to, we're going to be talking a lot about that today, about how we're really good at being generous uh, as as a church, and also we're, we really struggle with asking for help, and God is asking us to do both. And so uh, there's always hope, no matter where you are in your brokenness. God never leaves you where you are. The, the journey of being a Christian is this subjective experience of, of facing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing where God is putting us back together, where we get to trust deeper and deeper and deeper. And we always feel like we're still in that place of on our knees before Jesus saying, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, help my unbelief. But when people look at us from the outside, they go, they're doing something that seems impossible, which is that in the world it says that humans can never change and that people don't change. But they say, whoa, you all are doing something incredible. So that's what we believe, that there's hope beyond our brokenness. Second, we are called to trust in our risen Savior. And Jesus, Jesus loves you, and he saves you. And to trust him with your life is the greatest adventure of all. It's going to take us to the depths of our brokenness and to the heights of an amazing victory and in the seasons of the long middle miles of the marathon that is life. And all of our courage and all of our strength is required to trust him and your mind, and your heart, and your soul. Finally, we're called to bring restoration. So Mary got to be restored with change for a dollar, and then she got to be a part of that. How beautiful is that? So our, our, we had 30 guys eating barbecue and watching and film last week in our men's ministries is growing and so excited about that. And part of the men's ministry is picking projects to bring restoration into people's lives. 
We, we do this with uh, all across our church. In fact, during the second service, our kids, they go on an adventure every single Sunday to make a difference in people's lives. We're constantly trying to bring restoration right where we are because that's what God does. And you don't need a master's degree. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to have the Bible memorized. You don't need to have like five consecutive hours with no sinning, right? <laughs> God wants to use you right now, right? I mean, if he can use me, he can use you. So each one of these truths comes with a choice. That word to choose weighs 10,000 pounds in your life. You don't fall into uh, love with Jesus like falling into a hole. It's not by accident. You have to make a choice every day. So let's make our choice together and declare this loudly. And if you're online at home, shout it out. Wake up whoever's sleeping next to you (laughs) or alarming the person who's driving next to you. Are you ready? Here we go. Today, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Amen? Amen. So today in the book of James is our last chapter in this book. And we're going to be here for the next 14 weeks. Um, (laughs) And uh, today, James, you guys, today's rough. Uh, James, it feels like he's going to slap us around a little bit today. Um, But why is James so intense? Because uh, he's Jesus' brother, maybe. Um, it, it's easy to think in passages like this where, where the writer like James or Paul or Jesus or anybody else is so intense, it's easy to think, golly, that's really rough. Thank goodness it doesn't apply to me. Uh, that's not the case. The reason why this is so intense today is because what James is saying is at the very, very heartbeat of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it's easy in these moments to feel like this is too harsh or this is too condemning. I'm going to shut off. And I'm asking you today to stay with me. Will you stay with me? Will you stay with Jesus and what he wants to speak to you through this? And don't worry. I'm going to help you through it. But... I want you to walk away today both encouraged and reminded of your purpose, that your life, that you are needed and important. This is not football where 22,000 people are watching and 22 people on the field are in desperate need of rest, right? That's football, 22,000 people in desperate need of exercise, 22 people in the field in desperate need of rest. This is... The kingdom of God is, is that each one of you, right where you are in your life, right now, right where you are, have profound impact. And you need to be reminded of that and brought back again and again and again. I need to be reminded of that and brought back again and again and again. So, can I have permission to speak to your hearts? Yes. yes. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please. Soften us, open us. We say to our own souls, awaken, O my soul, and all that is within me. Lord, in the broken places, in the stuck places, in in bondage places, we lift those up to you today. Teach us, free us, deliver us, change us. 
in the places of victory and obedience, in the places where we've been walking with you, where there's life, we pray for more. In the places where, Jesus, we've just, we have forgotten or never even learned who you truly are or who we truly are, Lord, renew our minds and change our thinking. We offer our hearts to you, Jesus. And I know that we have people in our hearts this morning that uh, we're desperate for them to be whole. We're desperate for them to be changed. And God, we lift them up to you this morning. If they're sitting right next to us, God, we ask for all of us ears to hear. God, if we go home to them or we go home thinking about them, Lord, we lift them up to you, Lord, this morning and ask your spirit upon them as well. And all God's people said? Okay, are you ready? Let's read together. James has got to burn his saddle, so don't read this flatly. Are you ready? Here we go. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. I told you, he's not talking just to Jeff Bezos. Talking to us. Holy wow, James, what's going on here? You got to remember the circumstances. James is writing to the church. The church, within a couple of years of James writing this, right, is fresh on the heels of everybody that was a Jesus follower in Jerusalem got kicked out. Okay? They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They lost their property. They lost their family. They lost their friends. And then they arrive in all of these different cities to other Christians who are there, and they're welcomed in. Does that make sense? So picture this. Imagine if every Christian in Bakersfield was forced to leave, and they thought, oh, no, we're leaving paradise, and they were, and they were forced to come here, Okay? And literally next week, there was 400 more people crammed in this sanctuary and in every sanctuary of every church on the Central Coast, okay? And every single person that left Bakersfield was in need, and they were all Jesus followers. Some Christians in our churches collectively would open their homes, some would not. Some Christians would hire Those people from Bakersfield on faith, some would not. Some would, churches would rally and open up all the spaces that we had available to house our brothers and sisters, some would not. So this letter that James is writing is circulating to all these different churches in all these different areas, holding all these other Christians. Does that make sense? And so when that letter is read, it's read to both people who have a home and have things and have wealth and also people who don't. So James is calling out rich Christians. Why? Let's find out. Verse 2, read it with me. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Dang. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Dang. 
Our wealth will eat our flesh like fire? Like, what's this? Anybody ever seen the movie The Schindler's List? Okay, if you haven't, set aside half a day, watch the movie, and then you'll cry. But here's the basic plot if you've never seen it. Uh, true story, Oscar Schindler, who's a German business over owner during World War II, took over a Polish factory that had been taken over by the Nazis when they invaded in 1939. Schindler was making things for the war effort and making a lot of money. And who was working in the Polish factory? A bunch of Jews. And so one of the Jewish guys that was in the factory was trying to figure out a way to save more Jews by getting them jobs in the factory so that they'd not be sent to Dachau and Auschwitz and then killed. And so Schindler ended up saving over 1,200 Jews from certain death. And at first, he didn't really care. He just wanted the money. And then as the movie goes on, you can see that his humanity is restored, and he ends up wanting to save more and more and more. And at the end of the movie, and this is real life, Oscar Schindler would spend every single penny that he had to rescue more and more and more and more Jews by bribing the Nazi officials and officers and people. And, and so at the last scene of the movie, here next slide, there's this amazing scene where, where here's Ben Kingsley playing the Jewish friend, offers, they took what gold they had and they made it into a ring. And in that ring is written this, he who saves one life saves the whole world. And as Schindler looks down at his gold lapel pin with a Nazi emblem and his car and his suit, and he weeps and he says, I could have gotten more. If I hadn't thrown away so much money, I could have gotten more. At the end of your life, you won't be grateful for how much money you saved. At the end of your life, you'll be grateful for how much money you spent saving the lives of people that you love. What eats us alive isn't our failures, but our mispotentials. Piles of money rot because God wants our money used for his kingdom and his purposes. James isn't saying don't save money. James isn't saying that if you have lots of money, you're evil. James is saying that if you hold on to your money with the needs of the people around you, if you're literally sitting in the same sanctuary as your brothers and sisters who are desperate and you don't do nothing, at the end of your life, that's going to burn you. Does that make sense? You will be burned up for it. You will weep and wail knowing that you could have done more, but you didn't. Remember that at the end of last week, James said when when talking to us about staying present and making room for God, the thing to look out for is, is when we know what to do, but we don't do it, that's called sin. So one of the things I'm most impressed about our church is about is change for a dollar. Now, I know the amount that we give to people isn't huge, right? $781 isn't going to radically change anybody's life forever, Amen. It's not like that Florida guy who won $1.485 million after taxes, uh, right? I played the Powerball. I know it's a stupid tax. I don't care. I had dreams. Um, so averaged out, what that looks like for our church is that we give about $5 per person. I know some don't give. Some give more. Averaged out. That's with online as well because people online give as well. I love that. Thank you. Um, have, has anybody ever regretted giving money for change for a dollar? No. no. 
Because we hear stories like Mary, and all of a sudden, it's a miracle. And we never think, well, that was a waste that I gave that money away. Right? Never. Why? Because it's inspiring to know that we give a little bit of money and we make a huge impact in someone's life. It makes room and space and influence for them to understand that God loves them in the middle of their pain and need. Being generous in God's kingdom is like standing in a river. It's tempting to try and build a dam so we can keep all of it for ourselves. But that's not how rivers work. That won't work. That's not God's design for us. When if, if you try and keep all the resources for yourself, all your time, all your energy, all your priority, all your money, all your stuff, you'll never feel like you have enough. Ever. Ever. You'll finally get that car, and then six months later, what will you think? Dang it, the engine's not as big as I wanted. <laughs> you'll see somebody else driving, and you'll go, actually, what I really wanted is that. And on and on and on it goes. You know all that. The practice of holding on to our money when the moment of generosity comes to you, if you practice holding on and holding on and holding on and saving and saving, thinking one day I'll be generous when I have enough, one day I'll give when I have enough, if you hold on and hold on and hold on, what have you practiced? You've practiced greed. And so when the moment of generosity comes to you, you will think this, no, I just need a little bit more and then I'll give. Generosity is the practice of receiving God's blessings to meet our needs and letting the overflow pass through us onto the next person. That's the practice of generosity. So James then transitions from speaking generally to getting very, very specific. Verse 4, hey, look, you, the wages failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Evidently, Christian business owners hiring people, people from Bakersfield thought this, well, I'll just give them a place to stay and some food, but I won't pay them. That's cruel. Verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Again, written to Christians. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Oh, snap. Why is James so worked up? Why? Because generosity is one of the most basic foundations of what it means to know Jesus and, be, and follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is generous. Be generous with your love because he's generous with his love to you. Be generous with your encouragement because he never holds back encouraging you. Be generous with your forgiveness because he's not stingy forgiving you. Be generous with your patience, with your affection. Stop holding back. Give. Be generous with the time that you help with another person, the money that you give to the church and to your friends and family in need, you'll never regret giving that money away. And we're behind in budget, so 
we really need your help. But that's not the point. The point is to be generous. Why? Because God is not stingy with you. He's generous with you. He doesn't trickle out hope or patience or, or wisdom or love like he's tipping you 10%, right? Where he's like, well, if your service was good, then I'll give you a little bit more. That's not how God treats us. Jesus is generous and with absolutely everything that he has because he loves you, because you're worth it. In 1896, there was once two young men. They were working their way through Stanford University. And one of them, Herb, was an orphan and was all alone in his attempt to graduate from college. And so Herb, Herb and his friend with zero money and tuition to pay had the idea to raise money by contacting uh, a celebrity musician. Uh, his guy's name was Ignacy Paderowski. That's the pianist, right? So imagine this. Imagine today, right, um, if two young kids going to Stanford University can't pay their tuition, and so they call up Pat Benatar, and they say, Hey, Pat, <coughs> will you come play a concert for us, Okay. And here's what's crazy. So the pianist's manager says, okay, so here's Ignacy. He's the pianist, Polish guy. Uh, the manager says, absolutely. If you can guarantee $10,000, which is basically 100 grand in today's money. And so the students are like, absolutely, we'll do that. <laughs> and so they put on a concert. You know what's crazy? Their goal was to make... Uh, uh, sorry, not $10,000, $2,000, which is basically a hundred grand in today's money. At the concert, they made $1,600. So roughly $75,000 out of the hundred. And after the concert, they gave Paderowski the entire $1,600 and they said, we'll pay you back for the rest. Can you imagine if you had to pay Pat Benatar a hundred grand and you gave her 75 so you don't have any money to pay for your tuition, and now you're 25 grand in debt. That's where these two college students were. Paderowski said this, no, that won't do. He tore up the promissory note to, of repayment, and he said this, now, take out of this $1,600 all of your expenses, and keep each for you 10% of the balance for your work, and then let me have the rest. Paderowski, out of his generosity, helped these two kids pay for their year at Stanford so that they continue and, gradu and graduate. Why? Because you and I are designed to be generous. That's in our design. We are designed to give. We are designed to look upon need and say, I want to make a difference there. Yes? yes. We want to save a life. Yes? A friend uh, came to men's Bible study this week, and he was in bad, 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 bad shape. We're literally studying this passage. My friend asked for help, bus money, to go to a rehab facility. And like literally men's Bible study, we're reading this passage in men's Bible study this week, and the guy says, I have a need. I need a ticket to get to, to rehab. And the guys stood up and said, how much? And right then and there, they paid for his butt ticket to save a life. Men's Bible study saved a life this week. It's remarkable. Why? Because to save a life is to save the whole world. 
So now James is going to shift talking from rich people. Now he's going to shift to talk to everybody else in the churches who is in need. And I love what James says. Verse 7. Ready? Here it is. Be patient then. Wait, wait, wait. He's still slapping us around. Because rich people don't want to hear that we're going to, all our money will rot and we'll burn up with regret at the end of our lives. And what do poor people don't want to hear? Be patient. Ain't nobody wants to hear that when they're poor. Why? I got needs now. Read with me. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So here are all these people from Bakersfield. Somebody else's free will has destroyed their life. Now they're here. And what does James say? Be patient. All your needs will be met. Will be. Maybe not right now, but they will be. God is working. God is working to provide for you more than you can imagine. Be patient. So instead of eating the seed corn, you plant the corn, and then you have 100,000 times as much corn than you did. Does that make sense? Be patient. Patience is active. Patience isn't passive. Patience isn't like doing nothing. That's not patience. Patience is choosing to remember God's goodness when you can't see it. Patience is choosing to stay when all you want to do is pull the ripcord and leave. Patience is praying even when you feel like God is silent. Patience is taking a deep breath when all you want to do is shout. Patience is not driving someone according to your needs and desires, according to your timeline, but trusting the how and the when. Patience is biting your tongue bloody before you ever tell the story of you being a victim. Patience is telling the story of how God has come through for you again and again and again and again. It gives you the courage to wait. That's what patience does. So James says to everyone in need, to everyone who doesn't have enough, to everyone waiting for their prayer to be answered, verse 8, you too. Dang it. He says it again. He told all the rich people two times, you're going to burn, you're going to weep, you're going to wail. And then he tells all the poor people twice, be patient. Be patient. So annoying. <laughs> Verse 8, read it with me loud. You too, be patient and The Lord coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Because while you're in need and while people around you could help you and they don't, while you're desperate, while things are falling apart and you can't do anything about it because you don't have the resources that you need, it's so easy to blame everybody else. Well, how come they didn't? And why don't they didn't? And poor me. And how come? And God, where are you? And you're not here. And you don't love me. And blah, blah, blah. Grumble, 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 grumble. While you're waiting for God to come through, don't attack each other with grumbling. We don't build up resentments and cause pain. It's hard enough to be patient. It's impossible to be patient when someone is beating you over the head with their resentments and dysfunction. You understand that? 
The person that you're angry with, God is asking them to be patient in their need. So when we resent each other and beat each other up and try and blame each other, it makes patience almost impossible. So if you are going to speak, what would you then say instead of grumbling or resentment? Instead of pointing the finger and blame, what would you say? Verse 10, ready? Read with me. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What does a prophet speak? Truth. That's what a prophet speaks. Truth. So instead of speaking resentments and fear and destruction, speak truth. Now just take a step back and put it all together. James is writing to the whole entire church. He's saying to those who are rich, be generous. He's saying to those who are poor, be patient and tell the truth. The truth about what? The truth about what you need. The truth about how you feel. The truth about what's going on. Why is James saying this? Because the message that James is giving, this is why he's so intense. This is why he's using such strong, uh, such strong language. He's so passionate about this. Are you ready? Here's why. The only condition the enemy needs to destroy the church is isolation. A generous giver needs someone to bless. I've talked over and over again about something that Debbie, our minister of Razzle Dazzle, taught me a while ago. And it's this. Is that I want to be a blessing, but I never want to receive and then she said to this to me, she said, don't rob me of the opportunity to give to you. Okay. Wow. So the only condition, read this with me, the only condition the enemy needs to destroy the church is isolation. A generous giver needs someone to bless. Thus, Christians are called to be courageous in their vulnerability to ask and courageous in their faithfulness to give. When we all do both, no one is alone, no one is in need, no one is isolated, and literally God's kingdom has come. It's nothing less than revival. You are brilliant at generosity. Brilliant. I love you for it. We are on track to give $200,000 away to people that don't go to this church this year. How crazy is that? You are brilliant. You know how much we could do with 200 grand in this church? I mean, we don't have the prettiest church on the block. Why? We're too busy giving money away to people who don't go here. And I love that. I love that. Right? By the way, if you need to give or catch up because you've been gone on vacation, you can do that online. Um, <laughs> And when you give, literally, we have plans right now to bless and help and save even more people. Why? Because to save one life is to save the whole world. But here's the hard word for us today, and it's this. We are not so brilliant at vulnerability. It's way too easy to isolate. Now, I think as a church, we are better at vulnerability than any church I've ever been a part of. I mean, I'm talking about this church 10 years ago. We stank at this. 
This church now, wonderful. But also, we can get better. This week, I isolated bad. Finally, on Monday, I started to share with friends all that's been going through. Monday night, hanging out with our, our, my friends, our minister of mischief management, Joe. Uh, he started barbecuing tri-tip, and um, it was amazing. And Joe, our, as our minister of the most popular sermon, that, that, that was incredible. <laughs> uh, right? But even Joe, Joe, Joe uh, he was in a foul mood. And everybody was like, what's going on? He's like, I'm fine. I was like, what's going on? He goes, I'm good. And like he, I said, we're like, we would not, like, you have to tell us right now what the heck is going on. And finally he goes, look, I'm in a little bit of financial need. And he goes, but it's okay. I'm uniquely equipped to handle all my problems by myself. <laughs> He's the minister of stubbornness. That's called isolation. And so the whole group roared in laughter, and then we about beat him senseless. And three minutes later, Joe had all of the financial needs that he had in that moment taken care of. Yeah. Well, you do the same. You have friends. You have family. When they tell you that they're in need, you don't go, well, thoughts and prayers. And if you do... Let me pray for you with a stick afterwards, church, right? Everybody loves being generous in this church. I love it. But asking for help, that's hard. Debbie told the entire staff this week that little baby December, Zed and Denise's baby, she's just so cute, has zero problems asking for help. <laughs> right? She just cries. Oh, oh, oh. That's a talent, huh? <laughs> and what do her mom and dad do, right? Mom, dad, Grandma Tiki, that's Debbie. They're all right there, right? And guess what? Ain't not a single person is mad that she's crying. They're not mad that she's in need. Why? Because they want to help her. Oh, you're too hot? Oh, you're too cold? You, you're hungry? You need to be burped? You pooped your pants? Here we go. We'll help you. Right? So as a kid, we know what it looks like and what it feels like to ask and to be in need and to say, please help. And people help us. But the older that we get, we lose that for a lot of different reasons. We get betrayed. We get hurt. We can't rely on the people that are there. We feel like we have to do it by ourselves. People encourage us to perform or to get better, and we think, oh, now I'm all alone. I have to do it all by myself. And I'm not talking about, like, asking for monetary help. I'm talking about asking for prayer. I'm talking about asking for help emotionally. I'm talking about asking for help in your relationships, about what to do next. We stop asking for help. Everybody wants to give, but nobody wants to say, I'm in need. In my church in San Luis Obispo, that, that I was in five years, I was in charge of the Stephen Ministers. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But basically, it's training people to be like lay listeners and, and pray with them. And we had 35 people all trained to listen, and not a single person in the 600-member church ever needed help. They were fine. <laughs> so week after week, we'd do our training, and we'd help them, and we'd say, like, who can you help? And they're like, I don't know. Like, does any one of you, Stephen, ministers in their need? And like, no, 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 we're fine. We're here to help.
How many of you can relate with this statement? I don't want to feel like a burden, and I feel like a burden if I were to ask somebody to help me with what's going on in my life. Is that true? Oh, you are so not convinced. Does Jesus think you are a burden when you are in need? The answer is no. Let's say that together a little bit loud. Does Jesus think you are a burden when you, ha- when you are in need? No. When I share with you what's going on in my life and I ask for your prayers, do you think I'm a burden? No. No. Yeah? <laughs> so could, next slide. Could you shout this out at me? Oh, I feel like I'm a burden when I'm, when I'm asking for help. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to overwhelm you. Yeah, I know, but you have a lot going on, and like, I don't want to like just add to your plate because I just don't like I don't want to. You sure? Listen, my needs aren't that big of a deal. I'm uniquely equipped to handle all of my problems all by myself. Hmm. Joe, can, can you say that line again? No, it's not. What's the line that you told me? I'm uniquely, how does it go? We want to know. Look, generosity isn't a one-time thing. Oh, I gave you something. Great, I'm done giving. Generosity is a life of giving, but there's also something else. The vulnerability is a life of keep on asking, of keep on reaching out, of not isolating. And it requires courage. Don't give up. James says this, verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those, read it with me, like you have to persevere in your generosity and in your vulnerability. So James writes, you've heard of Job's perseverance and the scene what the Lord finally brought about, where Job lost absolutely everything and then God went through horrible suffering and then God blessed him with then double of everything that he had lost. The Lord is full of and for all those who are in need, God has compassion for you. He knows you. He hears you. He knows your need. Wait patiently. For all of these who have money to give, time to give, talent to give, energy to give, and you're not giving it, he has mercy for you. So don't stop giving And don't stop being vulnerable to ask. Because we think, oh, well, I did that, but it didn't work. And James says, persevere. Do it again. Well, I gave, and they wasted the money. Stop trying to control the outcome. Keep on giving. Well, I asked, but they didn't, they they just, you know, they said no. Don't stop asking. Try again. Remember that piano guy, Ignacy Paderewski, the Pat Benatar of 1896? 20 years rolled by. Ignacy Paderewski has become the prime minister of Poland. After World War I, 1919, right? Europe is a wasteland of trenches and death. 
and nobody can feed themselves. All of the crops, the fields in which they were growing all of their livelihood and food to eat were now mined in a wasteland. And literally the United States helped feed the world and keep people in Europe alive. And there was only one man that could help Paderewski feed his people of, Col of Poland, who was the chairman of the post-war uh, post American Relief Administration. And so with one phone call, Paderewski called the chairman and said, please help, we're literally starving. With one phone call, thousands of tons of food began to be shipped to Poland and millions of lives were saved from starvation. And after the starving people were fed, Paderewski journeyed to Paris to thank the chairman of the American Relief Committee for all of his food. His name? Next slide. Herb. His name was Herbert Hoover. He would become the future president of the United States. What you don't know about Herbert Hoover is he loved Jesus. His faith fueled him to help people. And when World War II broke out in 1944, Hoover took it upon himself to help the affected people by the war. Still in Poland, his faith and his life formed generosity. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to save a life. And he had the task after World War II of feeding 10 million people a day in Europe. And we as Americans got it done. He saved the entire country of Belgium from starvation, Herbert Hoover. <coughs> Herbert Hoover even fed the German people. So by 1919, uh, Herbert Hoover's efforts in Poland were legendary. 25,000 children marched on the streets when Herbert Hoover arrived. He wasn't president yet. This is before him being president. 25,000 people, kids, barefoot, marched on the streets to welcome Herbert Hoover to Poland. His response, he, spent, he sent 700,000 pairs of shoes to make sure those kids had shoes. Why was Herbert Hoover so dedicated to helping other people? Because Herbert Hoover was the recipient of generosity himself. When Paderewski, the Polish prime minister and pianist, met Hoover and thanked him for saving Poland, Hoover said this, that's all right, Mr. Paderewski. Besides, you don't remember it, but you helped me once when I was a student at college and I was in a hole. Herb, the college student, is Herbert Hoover. As you practice generosity, as you practice asking for help, God will put you in a position to save a life, and to save a life is to save the whole world. Jesus gave his life on the cross to save you, specifically you. He saved the whole world. To know Jesus is this. It's to say, God, I have incredible need right now in my life. I can't save myself. It's the, it's the moment of vulnerability over and over and over again, all throughout your life with Jesus, of saying, please, I'm in desperate need. I'm broken. I can't do this on my own. And as he pours out all of the generosity of heaven out of that gratefulness, out of that moment of profound joy of being saved by him, we then become his hands and feet to save another life. 
This is what it means to follow Jesus, for his kingdom to come. And it's happening here. And I'm asking you, persevere. Guard your generosity. Don't stop giving. Don't stop being vulnerable. Stop isolating. Reach out to someone that you know here in church. And if you don't know anybody, then you know me. And I want to hear it all. Because you're not a burden. And you're not too much. You're beautiful and worthy of every good thing God has for you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, bless and seal these things that you've spoken into our lives today, that we've sung. We pray against all the enemy's plans to rob, kill, and destroy the good things that you've given us. Jesus, I'm asking right now for you to fill us with your spirit and transform us. And all God's people said, would you stand for the benediction? We have amazing food for you. God bless you. We love you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you and give you peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, you guys go in peace. God bless you. If you want prayer, come forward. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.